0: You don't have to live life very long before you learn that expectations can be dangerous. It's easy to get something built up into your mind, to imagine what you think it's going to be, only to have it play out very differently. Unspoken expectations are especially dangerous. We do that a lot in relationships. We expect that our husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or child or friend is going to do something. We don't voice it. We just expect it to happen. And then when it doesn't, we're utterly disappointed. Expectations. We can do that about people too. Our spoken expectations rather. We can speak them and expect people to live up to them. A few years ago, uh, some private letters written by Albert Einstein were discovered and auctioned off, and among those letters, they were personal letters, and among them was a letter to his wife, written in 1914, outlining a list of things that he expected to be done, including that his laundry be in good order every day, that she serve him three meals a day privately in his room, That she were to keep his desk in good order and only he would have access to it. And that if at any time he was tired of her, that she would immediately leave the room. It's probably not a surprise to you that that marriage ended in divorce a couple of years after that. We can put our expectations on people. We can put our expectations on events how our lives would like to work out, how our, how our family times will go. There was a show on TV a few years ago called The Middle. I don't know if any of you ever watched it or not, but The Middle was a show about a family who lived in the middle of the country and everything was average. Their town was average, they were average, their jobs were average, their kids were, at best, average their relationship was average everything was in the middle and they decided that they would go on a family outing the mother was constantly in, in search of things that would bring them closer together and so she said we're going on an outing together and so she did some research and she found out that not far from where they lived was the world's largest oak tree stump And so they decided to pile into the family car and visit the world's largest oak tree stump. When they got there and stood around it, looking at it, the oldest son said, I had the lowest of expectations and I'm still disappointed. We all craft expectations in our minds, the way that we think think things should go, the way that we think they should work out, things that make sense to us according to our logic. So how does that relate to Jesus Christ and his birth and ministry? Well, Some of you may know this because you have read these things and heard them taught from God's Word before. To some of you, this may be completely new, but God had promised Israel a Savior thousands of years before Jesus Christ was born. And he was referred to as Messiah, the Chosen One, the Sent One, the Anointed One. And the Jewish people expected him. They looked for him. They longed for him for centuries. And over those centuries, they began to anticipate how he would come and what he would look like and and what he would do when he got there. But when he came, he shattered their expectations because his arrival on the scene and his approach... To the people around him, and the aim of his time on earth was completely different from anything that they had expected. Often we do the same. In fact, there are millions and millions of people on this earth who have rejected Jesus because of who they think he is. What they think he came to do, what they think he stands for, rather than understanding his true nature and his true desires for us. And over the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to see that everything about him was unexpected. And instead of being disappointed, as we often are when we build things up in our minds and they don't turn out anything like we think they would, instead of being disappointed, we're going to see that who Jesus really is and what he really came to do and what he really desires for us is so much better than anything we could have ever hoped for. And my prayer is that as we spend this time together over the next three Sundays, that we will understand him more fully and we will see what this Christmas season is all about. This morning we are going to talk for a few minutes about his unexpected arrival. And we are going to see that Christmas is about grace. What were the expectations for Jesus' arrival? What were the Jews looking for? Remember what I said he was called. He was called Messiah, the chosen one, the one chosen to deliver them. But what did they need to be delivered for? Well, you need to understand just a little bit, and please bear with me. I know there's probably a lot of history buffs in the crowd, but there's possible there's more than that who aren't history buffs, so I'll keep it really, really short, okay? Israel, by the time Jesus was born, had not ruled themselves for over 400 years. If you are to go all the way back into the Old Testament and read the history that is there, you will find that Israel was chugging along, and they had their own kings, and a few of them were godly, but a lot of them were ungodly, and because of their sin and ungodliness, God said, I'm going to bring judgment on you if you don't come back to me. They didn't come back to him. Well, they did, and fits and starts, and then they would wander away again, and so finally said, I'm going to judge your nation because of your disobedience, and he sent the Babylonians, and they defeated Israel. We read some about that in the book of Daniel. Anybody remember the name Nebuchadnezzar? He was the one that came through and defeated Israel. So Israel became a slave to Babylon and they were not able to rule themselves. And then the Persians defeated the Babylonians and took over, enslaving and governing Israel. And then the Greeks defeated the Persians, and they did the same. And then the Romans defeated the Greeks. And so for over 400 years, Israel was not able to govern themselves politically or socially. One thing they were allowed to do, as long as it didn't end in a revolt against the government, was to practice their religion. And they continued to wait for the Messiah. And because of everything that was going on for Israel over those 400 years, Israel anticipated, they expected that Messiah would come and lead a revolt against the Roman Empire. And would free them to rule themselves again because that's what they expected, then they expected that he would come from some kind of influential family, perhaps a wealthy family, or maybe from a powerful military family, or maybe even some of them believed that he would just come down from the clouds on a white stallion and lead them to victory. But that's not how he arrived on this earth, is it? I'm guessing that most of you know how he arrived. Follow with me as I read these most well-known of verses. From Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should should be registered. And this was the first registration when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Most of us are familiar with those verses, aren't we? This is how Jesus arrived, not on a white stallion in the clouds. How did he arrive? Let's notice three things from these verses just over the next couple of moments, and then I want to talk about how this affects how we view Jesus. First of all, I want you to see that he came as a baby, not as a soldier. They were expecting military and political deliverance. And coming as a baby and not a soldier is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, isn't it? When you think about it. I mean, when you picture a soldier, a great military leader, especially in this context, I picture Russell (laughs) Crowe. Gladiator, right? What was his name, Gavin, in the movie? Maximus. General Maximus, biceps for days, (laughs) strength in every movement, a booming voice, armor, a heavy sword. That's what we think of when we think of a soldier in this culture. But he came as a baby. A baby is the opposite of that. A baby is completely helpless. A baby can't, baby can't do anything for themselves. Babies can't even hold their own heads up for, what is it, six months? I mean, they're cute, but nobody's idea of a deliverer is a baby in a onesie. and a bib to catch all the drool. That's how Jesus came. See, Jesus did not arrive with the strength of a deliverer. I want you to notice a second thing about Jesus. Not only he came as a baby, not a soldier, but his parents were teenagers, not a power couple. This is actually very typical of the culture at that time. Many people have speculated, of course. We don't know the exact details, but records and historical accounts of the culture at that time tell us that Mary was probably 14 or 15 years old. That's the age that young girls, young women, were betrothed to be married Now, betrothal is often compared to our engagement, kind of, but much more firm in its commitment. The marriage contract literally had been signed between the families. They were to be married. Betrothal meant they had not been together physically. They were not living together, but they were promised to each other this was going to happen. Mary was going to marry Joseph. Joseph probably would have been a little older, maybe 18. He was old enough to have completed an apprenticeship and to have a trade so that he could support his wife and hopefully one day a family. Because they hadn't been together physically, we know Matthew tells us that it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit that she was even pregnant. That was scandalous at the time, to be sure, that Mary would be pregnant and not married Certainly for Mary and Joseph, they were no one's idea of important or influential. They were just another young couple among thousands, and they had screwed up. That's what everybody thought. So their baby would be no one's idea of important. influential either see not only did Jesus not arrive with the strength of a deliverer he did not arrive with the influence of a deliverer he had no position he had no power he had no influence I want you to notice too that he was born in a stable not a palace Now, a lot of people have speculated about this place, the stable. You see a nativity scene, you usually see some kind of a pole barn with some hay bales. That may be exactly what it looked like. Nobody took any pictures, so we don't know for sure. In that culture, sometimes barns, stables were standalone structures like that. Sometimes it was a cave carved out of the side of a hill. Actually, sometime, if you do a little bit of studying in this culture in this time period, sometimes the stable, ladies, imagine this, was the lower level of your house. You lived upstairs, and downstairs is where all the animals came in. And I don't mean your little puppy and your cute little fuzzy kitty. I mean the cow that gave you milk and the chickens that gave you eggs and the donkey that hauled the cart and everything else. So whatever it was... Whether it was a standalone stable or a cave or the lower level of somebody's house, it was not a nice place to be. It wasn't clean. It wasn't comfortable. I don't want to be too, too graphic, but it probably smelled like a place where animals spent a lot of time. We know that it was because there was a manger, there was a feeding trough. There was no privilege here. Do you know why? Because Mary and Joseph were poor. And by the way, so was their family. You know how we know that? Because if you're paying attention, we read those verses earlier. It said there was a census happening. And the reason why they went to Bethlehem was because that's where Joseph's family was from. And in this culture, Mary and Joseph didn't hop on that donkey and travel across the country to stay in a Motel 6. They would be staying with their family because that's what you did in this culture. Family did not let family stay with someone else. I know I'm going to completely destroy all of the Christmas pageants that are going to happen here in the next couple of weeks, but the word in is a very, very general word, and it really means guest room. I'm guessing what happened was Mary and Joseph, by the time they got to Bethlehem, because Mary was extremely pregnant that the rest of the family had already showed up to whichever lucky family member still lived in Bethlehem and had to host everybody, and they had already taken over the guest room. And so Mary and Joseph had to get shelter wherever they could on the family homestead, which was in the stable. Jesus did not arrive with the money Of a deliverer. So, what does this mean? How does this affect how you see Jesus or what you think about who he is or what he came to do? I want you to just think about something for a minute. There's a reason why I drew your attention to those three things over the last few minutes. Think about strength and influence and money for just a minute. These are the places that we expect deliverance to come from, aren't they? These are the things that give you hope that things can change, right? If something is going on in your life, what do you usually say? Well, well, if I was just a little bit stronger, this wouldn't happen, or I wouldn't allow it to happen. Or, if somebody could just put in a good word for me, you know, right? It's not what you know, it's what? Who you know. That's what we hope for. Somebody knows somebody who can do something. Or how many times do we find ourselves in situations with our families where we say, if I just had a little bit more what? Money. If I just made a $100 more a week, all this would change. And those things become our hope. That's where we expect deliverance to come from, strength, influence, money. But Jesus did not arrive with those things. He was not in those places because Christmas is not about strength. It's not about influence. It's not about money. I said it before. Let me say it again. Christmas is about grace. Which means that Jesus is where you least expect him. He is not in the palace, he's not in the halls of power. He's not in the bright sunlight of plenty. He's in the dark places. He's in the humble places. And by the way, he comes to you where you need him most. If you read the Bible very much, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see that there are a lot of names for Jesus. A lot of names, a lot of, a lot of titles, a lot of things that he is called. Can I just tell you what my favorite name for Jesus is in the whole Bible? You know what it is? Emmanuel. I love that name for Jesus. Do you know why? I bet some of you know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. God with us. Jesus did not arrive and go to the halls of power. Jesus came humbly. He's there with us in the muck, in the mire. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He He is here with us in the struggle that life is. He is here with us in the pain. He's here with us in the addiction. And in those places, you don't need muscle and influence and money. You need grace. You need grace. You need what you don't deserve. You need what you can't do for yourself. That's what grace is. You need a second chance, you need forgiveness, or maybe you need a third chance, or a fourth one, or a tenth one. If we look at the scripture, we see some interesting things about where God is, because that's what everyone asks, right? Where is God? The most familiar verse of the most familiar psalm, Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You see, when we're standing on the mountain peak, basking in the sunlight, we're not looking for Jesus. But when we're down in the valley, when it's dark, when it's desperate, that's where we find him. He is there. They cause us to realize our desperation. Look down through the scripture, my friends. Where is God? God is with Noah in the ark when the whole earth is covered with a flood. God is with Moses standing before the expanse of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army at his back waiting to destroy him. God is with Samson not when he is strong and muscly and doing everything he wants to do. And being disobedient to the vow that he took before God. No, God was with Samson when he was weak and blind and enslaved, leaning against the pillars of that temple. God is with Samson. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they get thrown into the fiery furnace. God is with Daniel when he gets tossed into the lion's den. God is with Hosea when his wife is unfaithful to him and goes into prostitution. And Hosea has to go to the slave market and sell everything he has to buy his wife back. And God is with Stephen when he is stoned to death. For giving testimony to what God had done for him. And God is with Paul when he is weak and alone in a dank, dark prison cell, writing the book of Philippians and talking about joy. Where is God right now? He's here. He's here in your darkness, in your silence when you think everyone else has it all together and you're alone out in the cold, the grace of Jesus reaches out to you. And his love embraces you in the silence, in the darkness, in the desperation. Pause for a moment with me and listen to the words of this song. Jesus didn't come in riding a white stallion, swinging a sword, wreaking havoc on the oppressors. He didn't come to reform the government. He didn't come to improve the economy. He brought a very different kind of deliverance. He came to give us grace. He came to give us what we didn't deserve which was love and acceptance. In our pain and in our darkness, in the silence of your night, Jesus came to give grace. That's what Christmas is about. It's about grace. Father, we are grateful that you do love us and thank you for Jesus Christ, this most precious gift, more than we could have ever hoped to deserve more than we could have ever imagined, you have loved us, you have forgiven us, you continue to do so for those who stand in your presence now as your children, Lord, you forgive us anew and afresh every day, your goodness knows no bounds, your acceptance of us is sure because of the sacrifice of Jesus. For those here this morning who may not know you, Father, may they understand that this gift of grace changes everything. We no longer have to live up to the standard of holiness because Jesus has done it for us. And I pray that each heart would be open to these truths this morning and that your spirit would impress them deeply upon our souls and that we might not forget them quickly as we leave today. May we know that you are sovereign God, that Jesus Christ is our deliverer, our Messiah, the one who has set us free. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when Jesus reigns over this earth, when it all is under his feet, and all will know that he is Lord to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Would you celebrate that with us this morning? Stand and sing with us as we close.